Welcome to Impact School, where our mission is to free the founder. In this episode, Lauren Tickner interviews Cameron Herald, a business growth expert, the founder of the COO Alliance, and the author of his new book, The Second in Command. Cameron shows Lauren a spreadsheet that breaks down the salaries of second in commands based on the company's size, location, and various other data points. It's crazy how people are paying totally the wrong thing. As a special bonus, Cameron so kindly offered his spreadsheet to our audience here today. If you head over to at Lauren Tickner on Instagram, follow her and send a message with COO, you will then get access to this spreadsheet. So don't wait. DM Lauren now on Instagram at Lauren Tickner and take the first step towards business growth. If you are ready to scale your business and double your sales, apply today at impactschoolpodcast.com forward slash apply and jump on a one-to-one call with our top sales specialists. Okay, let's dive in. Cameron, you've been incredibly valuable and helpful to me. So I just want to firstly say thank you so much for the tips that you've given me in this journey of being a founder, a solo founder, and kind of navigating the world of building a decently sized team all around the world. So how about this? Um, When it comes to the biggest mistakes that you see people just like me making, when it comes to hiring out their teams and scaling, what would you say the top three to five are um, that have just continued to come up again and again? Sure. Well, go with kind of the size um, of your audience as well, because I know you're a listener and the size audience they are. I could, because I could talk about building out teams of large companies or mid-sized companies. So we'll stick to kind of the more entrepreneurial size companies, let's say in the five employees to 50 employees range, right? So the first one is that they tend to, um, hire the wrong people at the wrong time. They try to hire experts when in the early days, you really don't need experts, nor can you afford experts. You need a few people that are real, the jack of all trades, master of none. They're good at a whole bunch of things, but not experts at anything, because you really need to be able to delegate lots of stuff to them that isn't necessarily into a bucket. So you really need to get people that are really good at the project management, really good at time management, really good at delivering almost the minimum viable everything, right? Because momentum will create momentum. And often we try to hire the experts when we don't really need them. Second thing that tends to happen when you get into the maybe five to 25 employee range is sometimes we tend to hire people that are too senior or too big business for our business. And we tend to hire these people that have big domain expertise, right? We get all excited for the big companies they've been working with. And the reality is we want them to build a company, not necessarily work in a company that size. I made that mistake years ago. I needed a head of marketing and I interviewed somebody who felt very entrepreneurial. He had been the former vice president of marketing for McDonald's, the vice president of marketing for Dairy Queen. I was super excited. He was Canadian. He was an athlete. He seemed to fit our culture. He walked in day one and he asked who filled out his FedEx slips. And I'm like, oh shit, we hired somebody really corporate for us, right? So you have to be very careful that they have the right skill set and they fit the right kind of DNA of your company culture as well. Those are a couple of mistakes that people start with for sure. Okay, so I'm laughing so hard because (laughs) I've totally made these 10 times over and I don't know why, but I just, I think I learn and then I don't seem to learn, right? And so- 
when it comes to well, you know stuff, here's here's another one and here's this this hurts a lot of us as well and 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 this is so often said people say oh hire for attitude train for skill or hire for culture train for skill we don't have time to train for skill so you have to hire for both the proven culture fit and the proven skill set for exactly what you need them to do but what i like to do is hire people that are about six months or 12 months better than i need them today so that when the company grows by 50 percent this year they're able to do their job still 12 months from now but if you hire them for the job that you need them to do today by the time the company grows they might not be able to do that next job another big mistake that people tend to make is we hire too late right? Because if you let's say that you need somebody to be, you know, in your company, April 1st, doing an operations role. Well, by the time April 1st comes along, you need them to be up and running, which means you probably need to have them start February 1st. So they have all of February and all of March to learn the job and learn the culture and learn about people. So that by the time April or May 1st hits, they actually can really do the job, right? So what happens is we tend to hire too late instead of hiring ahead of the curve. Yeah, because as well, then you face that issue of hitting the ceiling of the capability of scale in which your company has, rather than mm -hmm. increasing that capacity, which um, is something that being proactive on that, actually, for me personally, has been really, really amazing. Um, and I, love, I, I think what you said, there's, if people just listen back to that, they are going to take so much from what you said. It's just sometimes we hear these things as a passing comment and we think, yeah, I'll get there when I get there. But mm. if you're listening to this and interested in actually empowering and growing your team, you're probably already at the point where hiring for more capacity is going to be a, a wise move, right? Well, I'll explain, I'll explain why it's so important and why my experience can speak to this. So one of the companies that I built was called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And I took them from 14 employees to 3,100 employees in six and a half years. So imagine growing your company in six years from 14 people to 3,000 people, you know, from 2 million to 106 million in revenue, you really have to actually be able to hire people ahead of the curve and you need to be able to grow the people you have so that they continue to grow at the same rate the company is growing. Otherwise, they're gonna be out of a job, right? So you could hire a really good head of marketing today but if your company has doubled in size twice, two years from now, three years from now, that head of marketing probably won't be good enough to be the head of marketing in two or three years, unless you grow their leadership skills, not just their domain expertise, but their skills to lead people, grow people, think strategically, work with cross-functional teams, manage a P&L, you know, run their business area more, you know, more autonomously because we have more to do at our leadership team as well, right? So there's all these little complexities we have to think about in scaling on the people side. Yeah, no, 100%. And this is something that I know you're huge on. And this is what you what you do at COO Alliance is mm. training you, your your tagline is is train, train your leaders, invest in your leaders. And I think it's 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 a very, very valuable thing. I'll take a, a personal example. So nor um, we're just reshifting our leadership roles at our company right now. But nor has been with me for, for years now. And she is an incredible leader. And I think in her mind, and we've had open conversations about this, she wouldn't mind me saying this. But in her mind, she didn't necessarily see herself as the leader that I saw her as, and that I know she is that when she's with the team, right? So 
I took her to an event um, in Barcelona where I was speaking, mm. but then we stayed for longer and we had actually like a three week kind of holiday there, I guess. Um, just, you know, going around, having time together, uh, you know, having really great conversations. And it was insane after that trip. Her performance was just next level. And she felt, and she said to me, she was like, I finally feel like I belong here. It's like when I was in that room with all those dudes, because it was totally men. Like we were literally the only two women there. She was like, when I was in there, I felt like I was meant to be there. Because every time people would come up to me and ask me like super operational questions, I would say, Nor's your girl. And they would then go to her asking questions. And this was such an amazing experience. So yeah, I mean, if you're you're ever doing like in-person events, please let me know. I will tell my audience and I would love to personally come with some of my team and and, and also get um, my, some of my audience there too, because well, this is what, so awesome. And what, what you're talking about as well is that the leader's core job is to grow people, not to get shit done. So what you did by bringing her to Barcelona, by putting her into a conference, by having her shadow you, you did two things. You raised her skills and you raised her confidence. And the more that we raise our people's confidence, the more work they're willing to take on, the more they're willing to try, the more they're willing to risk because they feel safe, right? It's about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So when we actually support them on the confidence side, they'll take on more skills. If we grow their skills, like my course, Invest in Your Leaders, when you grow the leadership skills of people, they feel happy in their jobs. They feel more excited in their jobs. It's really about flipping the org chart upside down. Most often companies get it wrong with the CEO at the top, you know, driving people and holding them accountable. If you flip the org chart upside down, so it's like an inverted pyramid with the CEO at the bottom, supporting the VPs who are supporting the managers who are supporting the employees who are supporting the customers and you build the company inside your core purpose and your core values, then you win. So the leader's job is not to tell people what to do, it's to hire people who can get stuff done and to grow their skills and confidence. You did it exactly right. Yeah, it's been a hard lesson for me because when I look at myself about four years ago, I definitely did not think that that was the case. And uh, yeah, I, I, um, I look back and I see one of the mistakes I made is like, you know, just pretty much like telling people what to do all the time, constantly being on top of them rather than growing them, empowering them. Because, you know, I think when people are first in those beginning stages, their first ever three team members, as an example, you just think, oh, they're just there to get stuff done. Um, and then they get burnt out and they leave. And I mm -hmm. wanted to, come, I wanted to come back to that point because um, you mentioned how in the beginning, right, the hiring of specialists is not necessary you need generalists right so let's say i don't know how many your first five to ten team members so right one of the issues i know and i've seen our clients facing this a lot um is their team members actually getting burnt out because they hire the generalists and they find them doing everything because they don't have clear responsibilities so when it comes to that what what do you tend to tend to advise yeah it's really smart because what you're talking about is actually again growing their leadership skills the ability for people to say no. One of the core um, weaknesses of, an, of a first-time manager is their solution to every problem tends to be hire more people, right? Every time they're overworked, they say hire more people. That's more often than not, not the solution. What's often the solution is saying no, optimization, automation, maybe hiring some freelancers who are experts to get some stuff done, but not necessarily full-time, or maybe the ability to pull back a little bit and understand the problems or understand the systems a little bit more. But when you grow the skill set for people, right, their ability to lead, their ability to coach, their ability to delegate, their ability to do interviews, 
think about anybody that you have working for you that hire that manages people most of them have probably done job interviews they've probably interviewed and hired people and most of them have had never had any skill development on how to do that you know i talked to somebody recently and i said if you're doing one-on-one -on -one meetings if you're coaching your direct reports he goes oh yeah i've been doing that for years i said how much training have you had and he goes well not but i've been doing it for years i said great you might be doing it wrong for years and he's like, oh, shit, you're right. I have no idea if I'm even doing it right. So that's where the core, again, of the leader's job is to grow the people. When you start really growing the skill set, the leadership skills of your first three or four identifiable leaders, you grow their skills. And it's kind of going from the 10 to 30 employee mark when you'll build out your first real management team. And that's when you can start having some good operational skills in place. But if you can just get a few people that can manage freelancers and can manage people, and you grow their ability to be leaders, that's when you're actually going to be able to scale in the early stage. Yeah. So two things. So I have so many friends who are entrepreneurs, founders, they have companies in the level that you're talking about and obviously even bigger. And one of the things I've seen in all of them is they are always focusing on leveling up their team and themselves, mm. right? And not being afraid to, as you say, invest in your leaders, invest in yourself, because there was a period of time where I was like, I don't know, six months or so that went by where I was just so, it's just like I blinked and then six months had gone by. And I realized that in that six months of the most chaos that I'd had is when I was dragged back into working totally only in the day to day. And I didn't at that period of time, it's literally the only period of time I did not have a business coach. It's yeah. crazy. Uh... It's crazy. And so I, I was like, honestly, looking at the, this, this, you know, subject of one data point and I realized wow I can't even hold myself accountable to taking an hour a day of simply just reflecting if I if I am so have so much going on right and I think there's also the power of your team having that external accountability not just you yeah from someone who's you're right that and that's that again is growing people right growing their skills by getting them a mentor getting them an accountability partner getting them a coach plugging some of the right people into a mastermind community that fits for them, right? If you're a second in command, get into the CEO Alliance. If you're in marketing, maybe you go to War Room or Baby Bathwater, like finding events that fit for that person and then growing their skills, growing their capacity for sure. Um, another thing you talk about is, is the owner. You, you were intuitive enough to recognize, oh shit, I didn't have a coach and I was kind of struggling in that part or flatlining or something was happening. But something else the owner has to recognize is if they have more than four or five direct reports, they probably don't have time to grow the people. If you're a manager, you can have eight, nine direct reports because you're really managing people, you're managing business areas. But if you're trying to lead the company, you've also got your advisors, you have culture, you probably have legal, you have strategy. Those are kind of almost like direct reports in addition to about four. But you really need to be able to ask yourself, am I spending time growing my people or am I spending time just doing things? Because if all we're doing is things, then we're missing the opportunity to scale up on the people side. So that's something to think of. That's one of the core reasons or one of the identifiable points when you know you can bring on a second in command is when you know that you need to free up time or have somebody else to be running all aspects of the business to allow you to focus on culture and strategy and people. Yeah, no, that's, oh man, it's, been the most game-changing thing I've ever seen in in my mm -hmm. business my clients as well is finding that leader in their company that can take over the daily operations confidently and also support them and be someone to kind of brainstorm with and and get new ideas from and then 
So for example, no, right? She'll say something tiny. And then I will literally turn this into a whole strategy, whole campaign. Like it's gonna, it's so clear in my mind, right? And then I take it back to her like a day later and then she's able to clearly create the steps to execute it. So Bingo. this second in command- that's, And that's, that's you getting clear on vision and her getting clear on operations and saying yes to each other. So you're exactly. clear on her plan, she's clear on your vision. What's really nice about what you talked about as well is having that confidant, that mm -hmm. true yin and yang partnership between you and some second in command that you can actually be open and vulnerable with, that you can really kind of go, I don't know what I'm fucking doing here, but you don't want to turn to every employee and say that. You don't right. want to turn to every employee and go, I'm stressed. But if you can turn to Noor and say, I'm a little stressed today, but I know I'll be okay in a two hours or I'll be okay tomorrow. And she goes, yeah, I gotcha. Her yeah. job is to make you look good. And then your job is to make her look good. And then it's that true yin and yang partnership. And that's where the real power of the second in command comes in as well. 100%, 100%. So I want to tie two things together here, okay? Mm. So <laughs> when we were speaking the other day, um, and this is what I also mentioned in the introduction of this podcast to our audience, right? But you sent me over a sheet with data points of yeah. salary, title, company size, team size, revenue size, etc. And then the who the second in command is right what is their title as I said um how much do they get paid and then it was very interesting and eye-opening to me because I think when it comes to you mentioned okay taking your second in command to masterminds enrolling them in courses etc I think the reason why a lot of people don't do that is because they're already paying this person so much money that they then think well this person should just go and invest in it themselves I've heard this thing mm. exactly I've heard this from clients of ours in the beginning stages. They've mentioned these things, okay? Which is where this is coming from. To get a copy of Cameron Harrell's spreadsheet that breaks down the salaries of second in commands, head over to at Lauren Tickner on Instagram. Follow her and send a message with COO to get access to this spreadsheet. So don't wait. DM Lauren now on Instagram at Lauren Tickner and take the first step towards business growth. Now, back to the podcast. If, if they don't invest in their people, another company will. And, and, and I'll tell you, if there's great employees out there working for average companies, talk to me because I have great companies that would hire you tomorrow morning. This is, <laughs> this is it's, kind of like, it's kind of like if you're in a relationship if, if you think the grass is green on the other side of the fence, water your own grass. If you want to have a good relationship, spend time with your spouse, right? Spend time with your partner. And your employees are gold for you. You have to invest in those relationships. And um, you know, I, I had somebody once say, well, what if I invest in growing them? What if I send them to masterminds? If I put them in coaching programs, if I put them through courses, what if I spend money on them and they quit? Well, what if you don't spend money on them and they stay? <laughs> then you've got average people, you know, like, and you're burning them out. And again, it's kind of like, and we're more used to this. I mean, working globally, and, and you're European, you know, a little bit more, five to six weeks vacation is normal. In North America, they're, they're horrible bosses, because they give two or three weeks vacation. It's so easy to grab those great employees who are only getting two or three weeks vacation, offer them five, they jump ship. It's right. the same with training now as well. One of the most important things for Gen Y and Gen Z is the ability to grow their skills. They know that school was useless, so they just want to work on their skill development and they want to do it either with a company or online or with communities. But again, yeah, if you don't invest in them, someone else will. 
yeah no i i'm 100 with you on this um this is if you man, don't pay attention to your spouse somebody else will right that's that's right yeah and and i think the thing is um unfortunately i think a lot of founders are so busy doing something in silo from their team that mm. they don't ever have this relationship where their team are willing to actually open up to them um, and actually share like, hey, I feel like I, I'm stuck or I don't know where to go to for resources, etc. But I really want to tie back this point because this is something that I know is going to be like a question mark in people's minds now. So figuring out the, how, how to pay your second income mm. okay? Sure. Because because going back to this, investing in your leaders, when you're actually paying them the right amount for your company size, team size, number of direct reports they have, all the things that you and I spoke about privately, when yeah. you're paying them the right amount, then investing in them becomes very easy. And it can also become a perk of the job role, right? So I'd love to know how you get an understanding of this, because <laughs> I know for me in the beginning, I really think what I would say to people, I would say to them hey what's your goal like how much money do you want to be making I'd be really open like that and they would say to me wow Lauren I've never been asked what's my goal before they just tell me this is the job responsibilities here's the paycheck and it depends upon how much experience you have what you're going to get paid and so I didn't realize what I was doing then was actually getting them to open up to me but then there becomes a point where that isn't the best way to do things anymore because you start paying way more than you should okay right which as, as you know, I made that mistake. So I'd love to know, uh, yeah, your strategy on salaries. Sure. Well, so salaries, compensation and title are very closely linked. And I've seen so many people make mistakes on both. I've seen so many companies with maybe 12 employees and they have a CFO and a COO and a CRO and a CMO. I'm like, are you fucking kidding? You've got four people that are managing seven others those are at best directors. Don't give out big titles too early because then people go on Indeed, they go on Glassdoor, they go on Google and they look up, what does a CRO get paid? Or what does a CMO get paid? And all of a sudden they're going, oh, a CMO is supposed to get paid 250,000. Well, yeah, but you're not really a CMO. You're more a director. Well, then call me a director. So put a title in place that matches the roles and responsibilities and the compensation that you're willing to pay. And the compensation should match the roles and responsibilities and the level of strategy that they're able to bring to the business, the level of autonomy they can have in their role without necessarily needing to be led, and the amount of P&L responsibility they can have as well. That determines their, their compensation and their title. So I'll give you a really good example. Just today, I gave my executive assistant a raise. I raised her to $46 US an hour, which equates to $92,000 a year base salary as an assistant. But she's been with me for seven years. So she's above the normal executive assistants make $45,000 to $80,000 a year. So she's now above that range. So finally, after seven years today, I also increased her title. And I'm now calling her my executive assistant and director of operations. And I've told her her roles and responsibilities will shift. She's going to be in charge of managing projects, overseeing a lot of the projects for me and making sure shit gets done. And we hired her an executive assistant last month. So my assistant has an EA based in the Philippines at six bucks an hour, and we're going to offload a lot more of her admin tasks. So my, my roles and responsibilities, title and compensation should all be linked. That's something we noticed on the spreadsheet we're going to give to everyone who's listening. 
is there's a spreadsheet that will show you tons and tons, almost a hundred different COOs or VP ops or director of ops or GMs. It shows you how many employees they're managing, what their salary is, what their total bonuses might be, the size of the company, um, whether they're male or female, where their company is based. And all of these data points will give you a really good judgment, at least around that one role to think about for your company as well. This is, yeah, it, it really opened my eyes. And that raises a good point. So the roles of the second in command. So mm. I know this is obviously what your new book is all about, right? And so type in second in command, Amazon. Is it on, is it going to, when's it going to be on Audible? What date? It's on Audible right now. So when, as soon as anyone's listening, it'll be there because it comes out January 24th. So it's on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. The cover of the book looks like that. If they're seeing it, it's called The Second in Command, How to Unleash the Power of Your COO. And I did the audio recording for the book in Dubai when I was over there back in, gosh, I think it was October, I did the audio recording. So that's all live now as well. Okay, um, this is perfect. I literally, okay, so <laughs> as of the time of recording this tomorrow, I'm I'm such an audio person. So I will be downloading that literally. And I'm probably going to be one of the first to get it because I'm ahead over here in Dubai. So uh, yes. I'll be. I'll download it and I'll listen to it in my morning gym session as much as I can. I'll try and finish it all and then keep re-listening again and again. But um, that's amazing. So I'm going to be listening, man, every single founder or anyone who is even, you know, a co-founder or has a second in command or is trying to scale a company or is that second in command person or wants to be. Seriously, guys, you need to either buy the book, second in command, or go download it on Audible. Um, I, I know, Cameron, you're going to, blow people's minds with this because when it comes to especially if you're a solo founder I think it can be really hard to trust people as well and know that someone has your back and the company's back as much as you do so one of the things that I know is going to be a question mark in people's mind and if this is answered in the book yeah just just say because I really want people to actually go ahead and, and download it listen to it yeah but like responsibilities okay of a second in command Right. How, how does someone tend to define this? And is there a threshold? Um, because I can foresee people doing this wrong and their second in command getting burnt out. This is a great question. Okay. So, and I'm glad we're calling it a second in command and not a COO, right? Because the second in command can have, again, a different title based on the roles and responsibilities and money that we're paying them. So the real question is, how do we know what the COO or what the second in command is supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to do everything that the entrepreneur sucks at. And this is what's really hard to try to figure out. The head of marketing could pretty much be the head of marketing for most companies. The head of finance could be the head of finance for most companies, at least of that same size. The head of sales could be the head of sales for the same company. But because operations is the exact yin and yang, so whatever Lauren sucks at, whatever drains Lauren of energy, whatever Lauren doesn't like doing, that's what Noor has to be great at. And Noor doesn't want to work on the stuff Lauren loves to do. And Lauren really doesn't want to work on the stuff that Noor loves to do, right? That's first. Secondly, the second key part of this is how do you find someone that you like, that you want to spend time with, that you want to go to Barcelona with for three weeks, that you want to spend time with at conferences and events and lunches, and someone that you can have fun with once in a while? Not your best friend, but somebody that you at least like and know and trust and can have some cultural alignment because they're almost going to be like your, your business spouse, right? So you're not going to have to do everything, but you certainly want to spend a lot more time with them. And then third is trust. 
someone who on day one, you're willing to absolutely hand them your passwords, let them take care of your kids, give them your banking information, because they're really going to be running your business. If you're not ready to give them that level of trust on day one, you're not finished interviewing yet. Keep interviewing, keep doing reference checks, keep following Torque, follow the systems that I outlined in my course, Invest in Your Leaders, follow the systems from who, but absolutely, and even in the book, The Second in Command, but make sure that you know so much about them that day one, you're ready to hand everything over. Very similar to a marriage. You're not gonna meet somebody and go, hey, let's get married. Like you're gonna date for a while. You're probably gonna live together for a while. You might get engaged for a while. And by the time you get married, the, you know everything about them by the time you get married. There shouldn't be that much that's left for surprise, right? The other thing that you have to remember is just because someone has been a COO or just because someone has been a second in command does not mean they'd be a good second in command for your company. I've been a COO a few times, but I would probably be a bad COO for your company. Most of my members of the COO Alliance couldn't just switch companies. It's kind of like me saying, oh, I'd like to find a wife. Oh, you've been a wife before? Why don't you be my wife? What the fuck? That, doesn't, that has no relevance, right? How are we together? How do we mesh? What's our cultural fit like? How do we have fun together? What do you love to do in a relationship? What do I like to do in a relationship? How does that mesh? That's what's really key about the, the bringing on that second in command is understanding it. So it's not just roles and responsibilities. It's trust and cultural fit and behavioral traits and the size of your company as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm also thinking something going through my mind now is when it comes to the second in command, sort of earlier stages of the business, maybe let's say before you're at 5 million per year, something that at least for me was maybe quite apparent is at that earlier stage, like the person needs to, as you say, be like the yin to your yang. But then as you as the founder, right, actually step into a CEO role, because in, in the beginning stages, before you have a C-suite, right? Yeah, you're, not you're more just... Yeah, you're a founder. You're a founder. That's yeah, fine. That's right. But as you as you are stepping into CEO, maybe even eventually looking to work yourself out of that CEO role off mm -hmm. the old charts. I want to ask you this because second in command, then would they be the first person to step potentially into the CEO role? Um, or am I thinking wrong about this? Like no, you're thinking very clearly about it, actually. I've seen a, a number of COOs be able to move into the CEO role, but it typically happens when a company hits 250 to 300 employees. Mm -hmm. And why that is, is because you have a very strong leadership team at that point, whereas mm -hmm. each of the functional heads are very, very seasoned. Each of the functional heads understand strategy. Each of the functional heads could run a business, operate on their own, and the COO almost can migrate into the CEO role. So one of my founding members of the COO Alliance, his name was Zach Morrison. He was running a company originally called Elite SEM, and he was the COO of Elite SEM. He grew them from about 40 employees to about 700 employees. I used to coach them as well. And then they sold the company. His CEO moved into the chairman role. Zach then moved into the CEO role. But again, they were at 700 employees. They're now at 1,500 employees, and the company is called Tenuity. So wow. yeah, it tends to happen as the company scales. If you're a smaller company, like 25 employees, 40 employees, 50 employees, the entrepreneurial DNA is very different from the COO DNA. Mm -hmm. It's when you get to a corporation size 
that the DNA starts to be similar. But entrepreneurs kind of are winging it. They shoot from the hip. They make it up on the go. They're perpetual motion machines. They're coming up with ideas constantly. A lot of it is idea, culture, you know, movement, you know, momentum creating momentum. That's not the same when your company gets to be bigger and, and you've got teams. So that's the only time I've really seen it successfully done. I've very rarely seen a COO in an entrepreneurial company that's still small, like 20 to 50 employees, successfully move into that role, unless they're a much more entrepreneurial COO from the beginning, which I was at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, right? I actually had built a few franchise companies before. For the first four or five years I was COO, it was easy for me. Only when I was leaving the company at 3,000 employees did it get big. And they replaced me with, with the former head of president or the former president of Starbucks US. She came in as my replacement and she looked around and I said, What a cute little company. And I was like, Holy fuck, it's so big, right? So yeah, if you're if you're an entrepreneurial style COO and the company is still an entrepreneurial size, you might be able to flip the switch and move into the CEO role, but it's very rare. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And when it comes to the second in command, so let's just say you have like core leadership team. Um, okay, actually, let me ask you this. Core leadership team, let's say we mentioned before companies like five to 50 employees. Like sure. which job titles, like really, okay, would you say should be there at that level? So I, I'm going to say like for, for most companies, you'll have, have a, a marketing manager, a sales manager, an operations manager, maybe a customer services manager, that's probably it, or project manager, that's probably it. You probably don't have HR yet, right? You could probably have that done by committee. Um, a finance manager, right? So, so that's really it though, but finance, sales, marketing, operations, maybe something on the customer side, but probably not. That tends to be where you are at the kind of five to 50 employee range. So where I see companies transition, I call it the ones and the threes. One employee to three employees to 10 employees to 30 employees to 100 employees to 300 employees to 1,000, those tend to be the defined hurdles. When you go from one to three people, you now have a couple people you can delegate stuff to and we can get shit done. It's kind of cool. You can bounce ideas around. When you go to 10, you probably have one person who's managing some people for you. Whew, thankfully, I've got somebody who's managing some people for me. I can breathe, right? When you get to 30 employees, you have your first management team. You've probably got five, five managers who are managing everybody and you just manage five people. But they're not really strong leaders yet. They've never really built companies. Sometimes they're probably in the first time managing people or their first time building a company at this scale, but they're good jack of all trades. They've got some domain expertise, but they're not super, super seasoned yet. And the managers are all probably making between 100 and 150,000 a year. When you go from 30 employees to 100 employees, you've now got your first leadership team. All of them have deep domain expertise. All of them are running functional areas. They've all probably done this style role two or three times before. And they're probably all in the 150 to $250,000 range as the seasoned executives running those. That's the first time when the CEO really doesn't even know how to do the jobs of what's being done in those business areas. The domain experts, the VP of marketing or the CF, you know, the CFOs are just so much stronger than the entrepreneurial leader used to be. That's a real define. And then politics comes in, you know, that kind of stuff as well, right? 
Right, right, right. And uh, one of the things I know people listening are going to be thinking, oh my gosh, I have I have already 40 employees and my company is only making like 1.5 million a year. I can't possibly pay uh, salaries of 150, 200K. I just want to make it clear what Cameron's saying. And okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pass it to you actually, because I'm just thinking, they're probably thinking VAs, right? VAs are, uh, VAs are not what you're talking about, but you were going to say something. Yeah, so what happens, and again, when you're in the 10 to 30 employee range, the early stage manager's answer to every problem is what? Hire more people. So what tends to happen if you're only doing a million and a half in revenue and you have 40 employees, it's probably because you have a bunch of people that you don't need that were hired by a bunch of people that don't really know how to hire. And we should have invested in their skills more to teach them how to manage projects, get more you know, time management, coaching, delegation. If we can get more shit done with less people faster, that prevents the bloat that tends to happen inside of those companies in the 10 to 30 employee or 30 to 100 range. It's so oh, classic. I see it constantly. Been there, been there. And and you were saying something earlier because- Well, look, seen- look, what, look what Elon's doing right now. He's going to fire 75% of the people at Twitter. And guess what? The company will just be fine. It'll continue to scale. He might be managing the communications poorly, but he'll absolutely be able to run the company with 75% to 90% less employees. Yep, That's yep. a lot it's of waste. I know it, it's interesting. And um, I was just thinking because you mentioned before how when they have like, let's say 30 employees, uh, you probably have like five leaders, etc. in an ideal world. Now, what we've seen all the time is um, people coming to us and they are still having all those people directly reporting to them right? With no proper project management, they're doing everything on Slack. They wake up to literally 50, 60, 70 messages on Slack and also still have clients to talk to. And I think this is just where as a founder, like letting go of, let's just say 20% of your margin is okay to get this all fixed and to get someone proper in your team who can take care of this. Because believe me, let me tell you how good it feels to sleep at night and wake up in the morning knowing that I'm literally going to have like one page of stuff that I need to read directly from my second in command and her assistant because wow before I had that I was waking up in the morning just thinking okay I need to tell it's this overwhelm. That, that that yeah all the time constantly and it's like this constant fight or flight feeling but as entrepreneurs I think we thrive in chaos and we love to solve problems and so we create this illusion of for ourselves of this yep. chaotic where we can always fix these micro problems because internally it makes us feel good right and I think honestly it's an ego thing I'll say for myself at least um but Cameron I really wanted to ask you this because this is actually this is something that's been on my mind personally okay so as you scale and really build like this is the phase that I'm at okay is making sure that my leaders are growing and are having the skills to truly be able to as you say, hire from a place of experience rather than just guesswork. And I don't want to make that bloating mistake again. Okay. And I don't think I will. Um, cause we did actually also just bring in an HR person, which was a really cool moment for us. Cause we're at the stage where we really, really need that. Um, not because we need to hire too many, but because we want them as like, uh, the general manager so that Noel can actually step into a different role. But I want to ask you, okay. Second in command, being someone that's not strictly like operations, mm-hmm. is this possible or is it not yeah. possible? Okay. No. So again, the second in command has to be good at all the stuff the CEO or CEO is not good at. 
So in some cases, the second command oversees finance. Maybe they oversee marketing. They might oversee sales. They might oversee IT. They might oversee engineering. They may oversee customer. They may oversee product. They may oversee operations. They may oversee facilities. It just depends. The, okay. the core areas that, that feed the CEO with energy should stay reporting to the CEO. But your mm -hmm. second command could be IT and engineering and operate, you know, and, and finance and, and maybe not as much on the op side. It's just who really is your yin to your yang. Yeah, it makes sense because something I've been learning a, a lot about lately, and uh, this is actually from my current business coach, we were talking about how he hires, okay? And so he has seven companies, which he is the owner and founder of. Some of them he's bought, some of them he's created from the beginning. Um, and the reason why I wanted to work with him is because uh, for me, I really want to over the next few years is acquire companies to grow my company, right? So companies within the same wheelhouse as it were. Now, yeah. what's really interesting is that he's taught me how, for example, like very operational roles, you can hire great people from, let's just say like the military or like from corporate Starbucks, as you said, or like restaurants, mm -hmm. hotels, um, where it's like a high pressure job and they have many people reporting to them. And yeah. the salaries of these people are very low, quote unquote, compared to what you would expect to pay as like, I'd say in this kind of online entrepreneurial space, Correct. salaries yeah. you pay crazy. So one of the reasons why recently I, I did sit down with Noor, we've been having these conversations, is because to be honest, like an HR general manager type of role, I know I can hire someone who that is their skill set and they don't, you know, necessarily want to, you know, be like VP of revenue or like VP of marketing or something. Um, so this was just quite eye-opening to me. And the reason I share this is because, you know, maybe the second in command uh, can sometimes like stay in this very like operational project management role. And then you eventually are paying them like such a huge salary where you could have them in like maybe a more, quote unquote, like high value area of the business um, and replace them. I don't know. Does this make sense? Yeah. So as a company scales, almost every leader, when a company goes through two doubles or three doubles in size of revenue, most of the leaders get replaced or have a new leader come in above them. So here's here's why why that happens. Let's say that you're doing two million in revenue right now. When you go to four million, which is one double, or eight million, that's two doubles to 16 million, three doubles, the company is so completely different at 2 million to 16 million that it's very hard for those leaders to still be effective as you go to 32 million or to 60 million, right? It just gets tougher. So that tends to be what happens is you tend to start replacing some of those leaders. As a company scales as well, the CEO realizes there's less and less that they need to be overseeing. There's more key areas that they need to be involved in that feed them and give them energy but they don't necessarily need to be overseeing all the stuff they used to, right? Because yeah. their job should be to grow people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, right? no, it makes sense. It, it, it's just been very eye-opening to me because I think um, I think there are things, because let me just break it down to you, and this is where a lot of our, our audience are coming from as well. A lot of them have never been in corporate, okay? So I spent a year- Thank in God. Right, but, but, okay, yes, However, at the same time, I do think there are things which if you, okay, if you want to keep your company, let's say 
around five, 10 million a year. Sure, like you don't necessarily need to know the things that are going on there. But for what I want to do, and not necessarily just because like I want to have this huge giant company, but because I do think that there are things that can be pulled from these institutions into what we're doing that will make our jobs easier. Um, well, and and as you scale, as you scale, you'll start bringing those people into your company that have that expertise, that have the ability to run those teams, right? So it's almost like, it's almost like when a, when a, um, a person decides to have children, when your child is born, don't worry about what it's going to be like when they're driving cars, because they're only a year old still, they're two years old, like just worry about what it's like as a toddler. Don't worry about what it's like when your kid's going away to university. My kids are 19 and 21. I have a whole different set of things that I think about with my kids than I did 19 years ago. Right. So it's, it's all, you know, as entrepreneurs, don't worry about what's my, it's going to be so hard to run my company when I've got a hundred people. Don't worry about that until you're at 80. Because when you're at yeah. 80 people, you're going to be surrounded with leaders in your company that know how to build companies to 300 people, Right. When your when your child is fifteen, all of your friends' kids are fifteen too, and all of you are talking about is what it's like to raise these asshole fifteen-year-olds. So don't sweat it. Yeah, and it's one thing that I I was just telling you before we were recording. Jeremy Miner told me um, I was asking him about you know someone that I wanted to potentially hire, and he was like, well he won't get you past 30 million and I was like okay great <laughs> I don't need to get past 30 million right now and uh it, it, we had this great conversation and he was telling me about the different levels in which he'd hired people and then replaced them and it just made me no longer have this concern oh gosh if I hire this person they need to be able to get my company to 50 million per year it's just not the case and yeah. this was such a freeing and liberating feeling for me and it also gave me the confidence to pour into my people while they're with me because as an example right let's just take salespeople because it's just easy transactional and numbers are just simple right so let's say you're selling something that's like a 10k product okay 10k service all right so let's say this person is having five sales calls a day well even though you're paying them only on commission you're not just you know, no, oh, it doesn't matter if they don't make a sale because they only get paid on commission. No, you're losing 50 grand. 50 you're grand losing, yeah. Exactly, through not training them. And so it then allowed me to change the way I thought because even if this person only stays with me for three months, okay, no problem. Because I want to pour into them. We even have a full-time sales coach for our sales team now because this is so important to make sure that for every single opportunity there is to collect cash, we are there showing up and rising to the occasion. And now and look, I just, what you're, look what you're doing with when you have a sales coach, you're growing their skills and you're growing their confidence, right? That's that's and that needs to be done in every single area of the business, in finance, yeah. in operations, in customer service, everywhere. Yeah, awesome. No, I love it. I love it. And uh, yeah, just again, everyone, you need to go check out this book. I mean, I am going to be I think I will be the first in the world to complete the official audible live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So awesome. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and Cameron, this has been amazing. So for our entrepreneurial founders, um, of course, you know, by this point, they've downloaded the audio book or they've bought the book on Amazon. Um, they've sent the DM to get the free sheet, which is going to blow their mind. But I want to just ask you one final thing. Okay. Sure. If you could, if you could go back, um, let's just say, and you were starting a business or, or let's say you were going back into 1-800.junk, uh, you know, 
in the, in the beginning stages, it's your first three years in the company. What would mm. have been three critical moves that you would have done? What, how, yeah. what revenue level was it at when you started? It was uh, 2 million when I got there and it was 106 million when I left six years later. Okay. So, well, in that case then, what would you say the three critical moves were that you made that allowed for such a fast growing sure. smooth operation? Yeah. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the three things that we did. And the one thing that I would have done better is I would have delegated faster. I mm. kept things on my plate for too long and I should have delegated faster and grown people even faster. That only kicked in for me in the third year as the COO. But in the first three to six months that I was there, I did three key things that started the flywheel. Number one was we raised our prices by 40%. Because when I got there, no one was making money. The CEO wasn't making money. He couldn't pay his people well enough. None of the people out in the trucks were making money. None of the businesses were like, so it was, what's the point? Like, we're going to go out of business because nobody's making money. So we raised prices 40% and we positioned ourselves at a premium, like a Starbucks of, of junk removal or the FedEx of junk removal. Starbucks isn't even a premium anymore. Now you can go to a hipster coffee place and pay 25% more than Starbucks, right? So position yourself like the hipster coffee place not like the corner store coffee place. That was number one. Number two was we decided to leverage getting free public relations, free press coverage to really get the exposure for the brand because social media didn't exist. So Facebook didn't exist until the year that I left. You had to buy advertising and it was very expensive, but we could get TV coverage, press coverage, newspaper coverage, magazine coverage, even some early e-zines and blog coverage back in those days as well that could propel the brand. We were even on Oprah, right? We were on the Oprah Winfrey show. So that was the second thing. The third thing that we did, I said to Brian, we have to build slightly more than a business and slightly less than a religion. We have to get into the zone of a cult. And if we can create the culture, that's what's gonna allow us to bring more people into the company and will fuel our growth. So that was the three things, the obsession with culture, the drive for free press coverage and raising our prices to a premium. And then I should have delegated much faster than I did and, and grown my people faster than I did. And hey, now no one's going to have to make those mistakes because they're going to grab your right. book, Second in Command. Cameron, thank you so much for being here today. This was awesome. And yeah, I just want to say again, thank you so much for all the help that you've given to me personally. Um, seriously, you are incredible. And uh, I'm I'm so grateful. And I'm looking You're forward so to welcome. Dubai. Yeah, yeah we we'll, can have we'll see you in a couple months. We'll be over in Dubai in two months. So we'll see you when we're there. <laughs> Love it, love it. Cameron, thank you so much. Thank See you. you later. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Remember, if you want a copy of Cameron Harrell's spreadsheet that breaks down the salaries of second-in-commands, make sure to head over to at Lauren Tickler, follow her, and send a message with COO to get that access. We are so grateful to serve you. Hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and we'll see you in the next podcast.
Thank you.